Now that you've turned to Ephesians 5, I want you to turn to Psalm 1. That's one of those moments of inspiration the Lord just gave me. Turn to Psalm 1, page 552. This is a very, very familiar psalm. If anybody has ever read psalms, you generally start at the front and you always read Psalm 1. This has to do with the topic we're going to talk about, and I just wanted us to read it together. We're not going to comment on it. I just want us to read it together. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's a comparison of the wise man and the fool. You know, do you see that? It's a comparison of one who is wise and one who is foolish. And you see the end to which one, the wise man, finds himself and the end to which the fool finds himself. Now with that, turn back to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 15 through 17. Talking about walking in wisdom. Walking in wisdom. Being people who live lives of wisdom. Now we've been talking about, as we've been studying through Ephesians, and understanding how God has made the church and put the church together. And as we understand who we are and how God has saved us and, and placed us in the church, Paul has told us certain things that are true about us that we must receive and we must believe and rest in by faith and live our life on the basis of these things. He's told us in verses, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, that the Christian is one who lives a life worthy of the calling to which he's been called. So we live worthily, worthily of the Lord, worthily of his call of us. In other words, we honor him in our life. Paul has told us in chapter 4, verse 2, that the Christian is one who lives in humility. He's willing to humble himself. Live worthily, live humbly. These are marks of the Christian life. These are things by which we can measure our own walk and say, am I walking worthily of him? Am I walking in humility? Chapter 4, verses 3 through 16 Paul tells us and instructs us that the Christian is one who lives in unity. Unity of the faith, one with their brothers and sisters in Christ. 
constantly striving for the unity of the body, the unity in the spirit. In chapter 4, verses 17 through 32, another mark of the Christian is that he is separated from the world's ways. No longer buying into the ways of the world. No longer buying into the philosophy of this life. Separated from it. In verses 1 through 7 of chapter 5, another mark, Paul says, is that the Christian walks in love. He imitates God as God is loved that the Christian walks in love. His life is marked by agape love. And as we saw two weeks ago, in verses 8 through 14 of chapter 5, the Christian's life is marked by light. No longer are we the darkness. We are the light. And we walk in the light. No longer walking in darkness. And lastly, we look at this tonight. Paul sums it all up and he says, and we walk in wisdom. We walk in wisdom. Our lives are characterized by wisdom. Not foolishness. The opposite of wisdom is foolishness. Foolishness. And so for us tonight, I want us to look and to discover uh, the difference between wisdom and foolishness. Many of us already understand those things. But there's some points that I think that are important to reemphasize, to grab a hold of, to remind ourselves about with respect to this passage. So Paul says, let's read verses 15 through 17 together. Paul says, be very careful. Underline that phrase. He says, be very careful. He's not talking uh, about just being casual about how we live our lives. He's already outlined for us a number of things that are to characterize our lives. And he's going to sum all that up with wisdom. He says, watch how you live your life. Be very careful. If you were walking across a, 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 a fallen log over a very uh, great chasm, and you had to get from point A to point B, and point B was on the other side of the chasm, and you had to walk across this thin log, would you be very careful how you walked? Some said, I wouldn't walk at all. If you don't walk at all, then you have a destiny waiting for you that is indeed tragic. Be very careful, he says, how you live. It makes a difference to God how we live. Does it make a difference to us how we live? Does it make a difference to you as you see your brother or sister, even if you see the non-believer, does it make a difference to you as you see people in, in the world every day, does it make a difference to you how they live their lives? Does it make as much a difference, or if not more, how you live your life to yourself? It's very easy to point the finger. It's very easy to say, you know, boy, they sure live a lousy life. You know the old axiom, if, if one finger points out, three are pointing back. It's 
It's easy to point that finger, huh? So, beloved, Paul tells us, be very careful how you live. How you live. Why should we be very careful how we live? Just because of, of the uh, effects of our choices on our life in their everyday routine? Partly. I mean, certainly we live in a cause and effect world, and the choices I make are going to result in, in certain responses, aren't they? Certain actions on my life. So from, from a selfish point of view, in that sense, I ought to be very careful, and normally I am, how I live my life. Because I know that there are consequences to my choices. I know that I go off here, I make a, a, a foolish choice, I know it's going to come back and haunt me. If I continue to make that foolish choice, it's going to come back and really haunt me, isn't it? So I'm going to be very careful not to let myself get taken off. But even with all of that, and as true as that is, I should be very careful how I live my life because, beloved, I am on display. Who am I? Well, don't get too excited about it. Who am I? Who am I? David, stand up and tell us who, tell everybody who we are. Come on, show, show how excited you are. Children of God. Hallelujah. Right? Hallelujah. God loves us, does he not? And he cherishes us. We're precious to him in his sight. We're on display. Do you understand that? I mean, we're on display to the whole world, aren't we? And haven't we already made fools out of ourselves? Or some of us anyway, huh? And the rest of us are carrying the horrible brunt of that? We're on display. We're on display to this world. We're on display to the whole spiritual realm. Job was on display. God allowed what he allowed to happen to Job because Job was on display. Satan said, oh, you put your hand to him and see that he'll praise you. Remove the hedge of protection. We're on display. Because of who we are and what we are, children of God. We're not children of our father, the devil, anymore. We're children of God. And we ought to be careful how we live. We ought to be careful of the choices we make. We ought to walk wisely because we want to reflect glory to Him. Amen. Does that make sense? Sometimes we forget that, don't we? I mean, in the busyness of the day and all the routine and the rushing around, the hubbub and the shopping and the getting from here to there and, oh, I'm late for work and, oh, uh, how many, how many find themselves forgetting? Shame on you. Get up in the morning, look in the mirror. How many, how many are doing that? All right. Look at this. Look at this. Hold those hands up real high. That is, that is, I'm going to keep, the, this is astounding. Valerie, do you see how many people are doing this? They're getting up in the morning, they're looking in the mirror. What are you saying to yourself? Let me ask you, is it making a difference in your life? Yes. Do you really believe this? 
All right. All right. We got to be careful how we live our life. One, because certainly it bears on us, but more importantly, it bears on him. It bears on him. And the whole world, the whole world looks at God because of how the people who profess to worship him live their lives. Very simple, isn't it? Very simple. So he says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise or foolish, but as what? Wise. As wise. Let me tell you something really intriguing, really interesting. Maybe you're not aware of this. Most of us, all of us, if you're, certainly if you're a Christian, you know, if you're a Christian, that you are in Christ. Do you not? I'm one with Christ. Okay? Look at Colossians real quickly. I want to show you a verse here. A couple books over. Colossians chapter 2, verse 3. He says, speaking of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Christ are hidden what? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now listen closely. This is... This is upper division theology right now. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, right? Am I in Christ? What am I the repository of then? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I have all of God's wisdom, all of God's knowledge available to me because I am one with Christ right now. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are righteous? Why are you righteous? Because you have the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because you're in Christ. Christ is righteous. You're in him. Therefore, you are righteous. You may not live like it, but you are. The same thing is true with wisdom. God's knowledge. Because Christ... In Christ are hidden all the treasures of God's wisdom and his knowledge. Because when I'm in Christ, just like I've been righteous in Christ, I am wise in Christ. I know what you're thinking. But I don't feel wise. I didn't ask you how you felt. I asked you what you believe. You're never going to feel it. You're never going to realize it unless you first believe what this book says. What does the Bible say? The Bible says something. We got to say, whoa, all right. If it says it, well, I better start living on it. Wise. He says, don't live foolishly. Live wisely. Why? Because you are wise. Because you are in Christ. You have all the wisdom of God right there available now. Doesn't John say that the Holy Spirit lives in us and the Holy Spirit is our teacher and he'll lead you into all truth? 
First John chapter two. Yes, he does. Love, we got to get on the ball. A couple weeks ago, you know, we talked about the church being asleep at the switch. Living as if none of this was true. But the Bible says it is. Paul says, boy, don't live as foolish people. Live like the people you are. Live like wise people. Peter says, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything. You believe that? A couple of people do right over in that corner. You know what's tragic? So tragic. Is our whole culture is caught up in a philosophy and a, a way of looking at life that is so temporal, so worldly, so material, so experiential. And that has, has come right in into the church. We don't understand, we don't know God's power. Earlier on, we read in this, in, in this book of Ephesians, Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers, he prays for us, that you would know the power of God. The same thing goes for knowing His righteousness. The same thing goes with knowing His wisdom. At some point, we've got to stand up as a church, as, as individual believers, as the body of Christ. At some point, we've got to stand up and say, I'm taking a stand. I'm taking a stand for what the Bible says. And I'm going to, with all my strength and all my energy and all the resources that I have available, I am going to take a stand and live these things out. I'm not going to wimp out anymore. I'm not going to pale in, in, in the face of confront. I'm not going to say, well, I don't know. I can do it. <laughs> Some of you may think I'm not very empathetic or understanding. I am extremely empathetic and understanding. But at the same point, I love God. And I want Him honored. And so it may seem at the cost of some sympathy that I urge you on strongly. We need it. We need it. Sometimes when I discipline my son, sometimes when I train him in righteousness, it's a little difficult. And he questions whether or not I love him. And I say, I love you more than you can know. And I know that you can do this. And I want you to learn to live wisely. After we have a little discussion, he nods his head and he says, you're right. <laughs> Just like you, you nod your head, yeah, it's right. Can't argue with that. I'm not even going to get to my notes here. I totally departed from my notes. I'm trying to figure out how am I going to work this in here. 
Let's talk about the foolish man for a minute. Let's talk about what it means to be a fool. Common understanding, a common knowledge of of a fool. We you look out on every day and you say that person's a fool. We we describe that person as someone who acts or thinks uh, unintelligently, irresponsibly. That person's a fool. You know what I'm talking about? Biblically, it's much deeper than that. Biblically, a fool is is profoundly different from what we would call uh, just an everyday common fool. Scripture says in Psalms 14, verse 1. Boy, if you don't know where this verse is, you ought to mark it down. Psalm 14, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is God's declaration. In other words, the person says there is no God. That person is an utter, absolute fool. Lacking in any sense, in any wisdom at all. That person is corrupt. That person's deeds are vile. Why? Because a mentality and understanding that says there is no God leads to a corrupt life, leads to vile deeds. That person knows no absolutes, no standards, no righteousness. You know why there's no God for that person? Once they say that there is a God, they accept the fact that there is a God, then they know that there's some accountability. And what is it? They don't want to be accountable. John says in chapter 3 of his gospel, verse 19 or 39 maybe it is, he says, what, men love the darkness? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's where it starts. The fool lives apart from God in his thinking and his living patterns. If you stop for a moment, you examine your life right now. If either in your thinking and or your living patterns, you are living apart from God, not in submission to him, you are a what? Fool. You're a fool. Is God pleased with that? No. You're a fool. No person can live without God. No person can live without a God of some sort. The fool inevitably substitutes a false God for the true God. He creates his own gods according to his design. If he doesn't believe in the one true God, if he doesn't acknowledge the one true God, he'll make a God that won't make too many demands on him. He'll make a God that's easily manageable, won't hassle him, won't demand holiness, godly living. And also, God that he won't derive any strength from. Comfort, love, encouragement, healing, blessing. 
What a horrible trade-off. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1 that although the early people knew about God, they neither honored him as God nor what? Gave thanks. Their thinking became futile. When your thinking becomes futile, your heart gets darkened. You turn away from God, you turn away to idols. You you, you transfer the worship that you owe him and you start creating your own gods. That's what the fool does. No person can live without a God of some sort. Something is going to be a God in that person's life. What a tragedy it is when it's something just of this life. Men worship themselves. They worship part of creation. They worship money. They worship some image they have designed and created. Ultimately, man becomes his own God in that sense. He becomes his own authority in all things. Listen to Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. The way of a fool seems right to him. Well, this sure seems right. The way of a fool seems right to him. And then he ends up determining for himself what's right, what's wrong. He ends up determining him for himself what's true, what's false. He has no place to go to find out if that's true or what's right. He's a fool because he doesn't believe in God. The God, the only one and true God. Listen to Proverbs chapter 1. Let me read this to you. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22. Fools hate knowledge. Fools hate knowledge. Now let me read on. Verse 29. And since they hate knowledge, they do not choose to fear the Lord. Since they would not accept my advice and spurn my rebuke, they will eat the fruit of their ways and they will be filled with the fruit of their schemes. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and will be at ease without fear of harm. It's wisdom to listen to the Lord. It's wisdom to do what the Lord says. It's foolishness to not. Absolute foolishness. Now when he talks about the fool hates knowledge, the knowledge that the fool hates is not what we, we understand as technological, uh, factual, scientific knowledge that we're accruing uh, every day in our, in our lifespan. No, on the contrary, the fool prides himself on how much he knows just of temporal worldly knowledge. Somebody estimated, this is very interesting, somebody estimated that if you took all the knowledge from the beginning of time, all the knowledge amassed up to the year of 1845, and you were to translate that in terms of of, um, numbers of of, of inches, all that knowledge would equivalent, equivalent to one inch. 
from the beginning of time up to 1845. If you take the knowledge from 1845 to 1945, that span of 100 years, the knowledge amassed in that period of time compared to the one inch would be three inches. Then if you took the knowledge that we've amassed since 1945 to 1975 in that 30-year span of time, that would be equivalent to the height of the Washington Monument. And then if you took the amount of knowledge we've amassed from 1975 to the present, that would be nearly two and a half times. Someone has estimated that every 10 years, just our mass of knowledge doubles. We can't keep up. But here's the thing. Has that incredible leap in scientific knowledge, information, facts, has that tremendous leap in all of that been paralleled by a corresponding leap just in common sense wisdom? Has it been paralleled by moral wisdom? Spiritual wisdom? No. Look around at the world. You'd think with all that we know, things would be better. Someone said that they're burning off, burning off the oxygen-producing jungles, forests on the planet Earth at the rate of three football fields a second. Wisdom. Wisdom with all the scientific knowledge. That's real wisdom, isn't it? I don't even need to tell you about all the rest of the stuff that's going on, all the drugs. and I mean, you, you know that. As much as we know, as advanced as we are, We are poverty-struck in this world. The wisdom. Oh, I know a lot! How wise are you? I don't care how much you know. I want to know how wise you are. It seems like as one kind of knowledge increases, another decreases. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 17 speaks of the ultimate destiny of the fool, always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. They become smarter and more foolish at the same time. The natural, the unregenerate man suffers from congenital and terminal foolishness. The person who's not born again has a congenital and a terminal form of foolishness because he will not submit to God. He will not submit to God. 
He can't accumulate vast knowledge apart from God. But spiritual wisdom, divine understanding, elude him. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 20. Actually, back up to verse 18. The message of the cross, Paul says, is foolishness to those who are perishing. You experienced that? You tried to tell somebody about Jesus, how Jesus died for them, and they looked at you with a blank look, and they said, you're foolish. <laughs> it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligence, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. And the Greeks look for wisdom, all their philosophy. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Amen. Jack, would you turn those fans on, please? You guys warm? Yeah, turn those fans on. No, the fans. Flip the switches on the wall there. There you go. All right. Good. Open a couple doors so we can get some air in here too. Listen to this. Look at verse 26. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Isn't that encouraging to you? You may have thought you were, but Paul says you weren't. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world. Hallelujah! To shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. Do you understand? It's the, see, it's the unregenerate the unregenerate person who thinks he's wise who isn't wise. And it's we who don't understand. It's we who are simple who are really wise. Why? Because we possess the wisdom of God. We possess it. Wisdom begins where? With the fear of the Lord. With the fear of the Lord. That's amazing. A guy in the back row got that. Was that you that said that? Incredible. Something good came out of the back row. Amen. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7. 
Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom continues by acknowledging God's truth and God's ways. Let me read to you quickly from Hosea chapter 14, verse 9. Who is wise? He will realize these things. Who is discerning? He will understand these. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. What words was he talking about? Well, the whole Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, if you hear these words and you put them into practice, you're what? You're wise. You want to understand something about wisdom? Read the Sermon on the Mount. Study the Sermon on the Mount. Memorize the Sermon on the Mount. Do you want to understand something about wisdom? Wisdom, very simply, is this. Wisdom, get this down, write this down. Wisdom is the practical application of the truth. Profound, isn't that? Wisdom is the practical application of the truth. Jesus says, if you hear my words, my words are true, and you do them, you'll be like a what? Wise man who built his house on a rock. When the storms came, it wasn't all blown away. But to be a wise man, you got to know the truth. You got to know what the truth is. You go to the word of God. You go back to uh, Ephesians chapter 5. Look at verse 16. Paul says now, be very careful how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of many of your opportunities. Every. What? Every. Making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. This idea of making the most of every opportunity, uh, the Greek word that describes that process is ex agarazo. It means to buy out of slavery, to redeem. It's the same word that Paul uses in Galatians chapter 3 when he talks about us being redeemed by Christ from slavery to the law. Paul says, redeem your time. Make the best use of every opportunity. The best use of every opportunity. Aside from outright disobedience, the most foolish thing a Christian can do is to waste time and waste opportunities. Think about that. It's possible for Christians to live foolishly, isn't it? He says, don't do it. Live wisely. Make the most of every opportunity. Don't waste time. Don't waste opportunities that God brings before you. Don't fritter away your time in life in trivial pursuits. Don't invest yourself in half-hearted service. Get on fire. He says the days are evil. The days are evil. He means we don't have much time and there's a lot of opposition. So every opportunity that comes, you can take opportunity. Make the most of it. Because it may not come again. 
That's with people you meet, opportunities, uh, situations, every opportunity. Be careful how you live. Don't fritter away your time. Don't invest yourself in stuff that is just going to burn. I lay in my bed every night and I, as I talk to the Lord and I say, Lord, how did I live my life today? Help me review my life. And I see opportunities I missed right and left. I think, oh, what a fool. How come I didn't see that? Why didn't I take advantage of that? Oh, I could have slid right in there and said something. But I go, oh, God, forgive me. I wasted time. I wasted energy. I wasted opportunities that you provided for me. Why? Because I was so self-absorbed. Remember the people of Noah's day? Did they miss opportunities? I hope to shout. 120 years worth. Hey, no, what are you building the boat for? It's going to rain. Whoa. <laughs> they miss an opportunity. Remember Matthew chapter 25, the five foolish virgins? Did they miss an opportunity? Absolutely. They just kind of slumbered along, didn't they? Thinking everything was okay. Oh, there's plenty of time. John chapter 9, verse 4. Listen to what Jesus says. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is the day, because night is coming when no man can work. What's he saying? He's saying seize the opportunity while you have it. Don't fritter away your time. Don't think, well, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Judas, the most tragic example of wasted opportunity. Three years walked in the very company of Jesus himself. What a waste. What a waste. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. Peter says, Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, based on its own merits, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. In other words, man, while you're here, make the best. Make the most of it. Don't fool around. Listen to what James says. Chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Now listen. Listen. You who say tomorrow or today we will go uh, to this or that city, spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why do you not even know what will happen tomorrow? What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good that he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Beloved, there is no assurance of tomorrow. Let me say that again. There is no assurance of All we have is what? This moment. 
if we could just keep that in the front of our thinking. I want to honor you at this moment. I want you to receive all the glory you can see from me from this moment. Not be caught up in tomorrow, but tomorrow, tomorrow. There's no assurance of tomorrow. Our days are numbered, and we don't know the number of them. You don't know when you're going to be taken. You don't know when something's going to happen. Are you making the most of the days and the most of the opportunities, the time that God has given? We have little time and we have much opposition. Make the most of them. Make the most of those opportunities. Live in wisdom. And then he says in verse 17, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do you understand what God's will is for your life? Generally we can. The Bible gives us general principles but specifically, what is God's will for my life? How do I fit in? You know, if you look at the church, you become a Christian, and you wonder, about, you see all the possible ministry, you see all the things you can be involved in, you say, oh, Lord, where do I fit? It's very easy to get overwhelmed. It's very easy to feel so inadequate and incompetent, you never do anything. But Paul instructs us, he says, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. You want to know God's will for your life? Let me give you some passages you can look up on your own. And these are general principles for the Lord's will. And if you understand and live by these principles, then the more particular things in your life, the Bible says the Holy Spirit will lead you. If you're a child of God, you will be led of the Spirit of God. And if you're doing these macro kinds of things, then the micro kinds of things, God will take care of them. He'll lead you. Let me give them to you real quickly. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Write these verses down. You can look them up. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. The very first thing that God's will is for your life is that you be saved. Isn't that encouraging? Next week, we're going to look at chapter 5, verse 18 in Ephesians. Not only does God, is God's will for us to be saved, His will is for us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about that next week. The third thing, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, God's will for your life is that you be holy. That's a good one, isn't it? Saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, holy. Woo! Here's a fourth thing that God's will for your life is. That you be submissive. Submissive to temporal leaders. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And to spiritual leaders. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. So that you be submissive. So now you're saved, you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're holy, you're submissive. And beloved, sometimes it may be God's will to include suffering. It may be God's will for you to suffer. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. If I'm going too fast for you, get the tape. 
God's will for you culminates in guess what? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18. Giving thanks no matter what. So you're saved. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? You're holy. Submissive. Suffering. Giving thanks. You're in God's will. Hallelujah. Now listen. Listen. You say, yeah, but I understand all that, but I want to know what God's will is for me. <laughs> You'll never understand what God's will is for you unless these things are in your life. Well, I want to know who God wants me to marry. Get holy first. God will lead you to that person he wants you to marry. You won't marry foolishly. There's a lot of people marrying foolishly today and paying a horrible price for it. Of course, none of you did. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, we're going to close with this. Prepare for communion. Talking about knowing God's will, Paul writes in chapter 12 of Romans, verses 1 and 2. He says, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, I urge you to offer your body as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. He says, this is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. But rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, then, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. You're not going to know God's will for your life until you learn to become a living sacrifice in response to His mercy to you. Until you truly learn how to worship God with your life every day. Until you learn how to undergo that process of transformation by the renewing of your mind as you put off the world. Then you'll know. Then God's will will become so crystal clear to you. Man, it'll slap you right in the face. You say, whoa. You go, hallelujah. David says that God will give you, delight yourself in the Lord. And God will give you the desires of your heart. You know what we're talking about? Living wisely. You live wisely, you'll be delighting yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. He'll merge your heart with His heart. And His desires will become your desires. His will will be your will. And you will be blessed. And in everything you do, you will prosper.
Let's pray.